Chapter 15 of The Inner Shrine by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 15. As the pivot of events, Miss Lucilla Van Tromp was beginning to feel the responsibilities of her position. Only a woman with an inexhaustible heart could have met, as she did, the demands for sympathy, of various shades, made by the chief participants in the drama. Well, there was one phase of the action which called for heroic display of conscience. It was impossible now to contemplate Marian Grimston's peril without a grave sense of the duties imposed by friendship. Some people might stand by and see a girl wreck her happiness by giving her heart to an unworthy suitor, but Miss Van Tromp was not among that number. It was, in fact, one of those junctures which all her good instincts prompted her to say, I ought to go and tell her. As a patriotic spinster, she held decided views on the question of marriage between American heiresses and impecunious foreign noblemen. And in her eyes, all foreign noblemen were impecunious. In any case. But to see Marian Grimston become the victim of her parents' vulgar ambition gave to the subject a personal bearing which made her duty urgent. If ever there was a moment when a goddess and a machine could feel justified in descending for active intervention, it was now. She had the less hesitation in doing so, owing to the fact that she had known Marian since her cradle, and between the two there had always existed the subtle tie which not seldom binds the widely diverse but essentially like-minded together. Accordingly, on a bright May morning, within a few days of the last meeting between Derrick Prune and Diane Eveliff, she sallied forth to the fashionable quarter where Mrs. Bayford dwelt, coming home, some two hours later, with a considerably extended knowledge of the possibilities inherent in human nature. The tale Miss Lucilla told was that which had already been many times repeated, each narrator lending to it the colour imparted by his own views of life. As now set forth, it became the story of a girl sought in marriage by a man who has inflicted mortal wrong upon an innocent young woman. With unconscious art, Miss Lucilla placed Marian Grimston herself in the centre of the piece, making the subsidiary characters revolve around her. This situation brought with it a double duty, the one explicit in writing the oppressed, the other implicit, for Miss Lucilla balked at putting it too plainly into words, in punishing a wicked Marquis. The girl sat with head slightly bowed and rich colour deepening. If she showed emotion at all, it was in her haughty stillness, as though she voluntarily put all expression out of her face until the recital was ended. The effect on Miss Lucilla, as they sat side by side on a sofa, was slightly disconcerting, so that she came to her conclusion lamely. "'Of course, my dear, I don't know his side of the story, or what he may have to say in self-defence. I'm only telling you what I've heard, and just as I heard it.' "'I dare say it's quite right.' The brevity and suggested cynicism of this reply produced in Miss Lucilla a little shock. Oh, then you think there would be nothing surprising in it. It's the sort of thing that's always happening in Paris. It's one of the peculiarities of that society that you can never believe half the evil you hear of anyone, not even if it's told you by the man himself. I might go so far as to say that when it's told you by himself, you're least of all inclined to credit it. But how dreadful! Things are dreadful or not according to the degree in which you're used to them. I've grown up in that atmosphere, 
and so I can endure it. In fact, any other atmosphere seems to me to lack some of the necessary ingredients of air. Just as to some people, to Napoleon, for instance, a woman who isn't rouged isn't wholly dressed. I know that's only your way of talking, dear. Oh, you can't shock me. At any rate, the way of talking shows you what I mean. I can quite understand how Monsieur de Bienville might have said that of Mrs. Evelyn. Lucilla's look of pain induced Miss Grimston promptly to qualify her statement. I said I could understand it. I didn't say I respected it. It's only what's been said of hundreds of thousands of women in Paris by hundreds of thousands of men. And in the place where they've said it, it's taken with a traditional grain of salt. If all had gone as it was going at the time, if the Evelyns hadn't lost their money, if Mr. Evelyn hadn't shot himself, if Mrs. Evelyn had kept her place in French society, the story wouldn't have done her any harm. People would have shrugged their shoulders at it and forgotten it. It's the transferring of the scene here, among you, that makes it grave. All your ideas are so different that what bad becomes worse by being carried out of its milieu. Monsieur de Bienville must be made to understand that and repair the wrong. You seem to think there's no question but that there is a wrong. Oh, I suppose there isn't. There are so many cases of the kind. Mrs. Evelyn is probably neither more nor less than one of the many French women of her rank in life who liked to skate out on the thin edges of excitement without any intention of going through. There are always women like my Aunt Bayford to think the worst of people of that sort, and to say it. And yet I don't see how that justifies Monsieur de Bienville. It doesn't justify, it only explains. Responsibility presses less heavily on the individual when it's shared. But wouldn't the person... Oh, forgive me, my dear, won't you, if I'm going too far? Wouldn't the person who has to take his part in that kind of responsibility be a doubtful keeper of one's happiness? Miss Grimston, half lowering her eyes, looked at her visitor with slumberous suspension of expression and made no reply. If a man isn't good... Miss Lucilla began again tremblingly. No man is perfect. True, dear, and yet are there not certain qualities which we ought to consider as essentials? Monsieur de Bienville has those qualities for me. But surely, dear, you can't mean... Yes, I do mean. The aval was made quietly, with the still bearing of one who gives a few drops of confession out of deep oceans of reserve. Miss Lucilla gazed at her in astonishment. That her parents should sacrifice her was not surprising, but that she should be willing to sacrifice herself went beyond the limits of thought. The revelation that Marion could actually love the man was so startling that it shocked her out of her timidity, loosening the strings of her eloquence and unsealing the sources of her maternal tenderness. There was nothing original in Miss Lucilla's subsequent line of argument. It was the old, oft-uttered, futile appeal to the head when the heart has already spoken. It premised the possibility of placing one's affections where one cannot give one's respect, regardless of the fact that the thing is done a thousand times a day. It reasoned, it predicted, it implored, with an effect no more disintegrating on the girl's decision than moonbeams make upon a mountain. Through it all, she sat and listened with the veiled eyes and mysterious impassivity which gave to her personality a curiously incalculable quality as of a force presenting none of the ordinary phenomena by which to measure or compute it. It was not until Miss Lucilla touched on the subject of honour 
that she obtained any sign of the effect she was producing. It was no more on Marian's part than an uneasy movement, but it betrayed its cause. Miss Lucilla pressed her point with renewed insistence, and presently two big tears hung on the long black lashes and rolled down. I should like to see Mrs. Evelyn. Like the hasty raising and dropping of a curtain on some jealously guarded view, the words gave to Miss Lucilla but a fleeting glimpse of what was passing in the obscure recesses of the girl's heart. But she determined to make the most of it by fixing there and then the day and hour when, without apparently forcing the event, the two might come face to face on the neutral ground of Cromercy Park. It was a meeting that, when it took place, would have been attended with embarrassment had not both young women been practised in the ways of their little world. Progress in mutual understanding was made the easier by the existence, on both sides, of the European view of life, with its fusion of interests, its softness of outline, its give and take of toleration, in contradistinction to the sharp, clear insistence the American demands for a certain line of conduct and no other. Five minutes had not gone by in talk, before each found in the other's presence that sense of repose which comes from similar habits of thought and a common native idiom. Whatever grounds for difference they might find, they were at least ranged on the same side in that battle which the two hemispheres half unconsciously wage upon each other as to the main purposes of life. Thus, they were able to approach their subject without that first preliminary shock which makes it difficult for races to agree. And thus, too, Marian Grimston found herself, before she was aware of it, pouring out to Diane Evelith that heart which, in response to Miss Lucilla's tender pleading, had been done. They sat in the big, sombre library, where only a few days before Diane had seen Derek Prune turn his back on her without even a gesture of farewell. On the long mahogany table, the red azalea was in almost passionate luxuriance of blossom, while through the open window faint odours of lilac came from Miss Lucilla's bit of garden. "'I don't want you to think him worse than you're obliged to,' Marian said, as though in defence of the stand her heart had taken. "'I've been told that very few men possess the two kinds of courage, the moral and the physical. Savonarola had the one, and Nelson had the other, but neither of them had both.' And of the two, for me, the physical is the essential. I can't help it. If I had to choose between a soldier and a saint, I'd take to the soldier. When the worst is said of Monsieur de Bonville, it must be admitted that he's brave. I've always understood that he was a good rider and a good shot, Diane admitted. I've no doubt that in battle he would conduct himself like a hero. The girl's head went up proudly and from the languorous eyes there came one splendid flash before the lids fell over them again. I know he would, and when a man has that sort of courage, he's worth saving. You admit, then, that he needs to be saved? Again the heavy lids were lifted for one brief searchlight glance. Yes, I admit that. I believe he has wronged you. I can't tell you how I know it, but I do. It's to tell you so that I've asked you to come here. I hoped to make you see, as I do, that he's capable of doing it without appreciating the nature of his crime. If we could get him to see that, then what? He'd make you reparation. Are you so sure? I'm very sure. If he didn't. 
consequences of that possibility being difficult of expression, she hung upon her words. I should be sorry to have you brought to so momentous a decision on my account. It wouldn't be on your account. It would be on my own. I understand myself well enough to see that I could love a dishonourable man, but I couldn't marry him. You have, of course, your own idea as to what makes a man dishonourable. What makes a man dishonourable is to persist in dishonour after he has become aware of it. Anyone may speak thoughtlessly or boastfully or foolishly and be forgiven for it. But he can't be forgiven if he keeps it up, especially when by his doing so a woman has to suffer. The movement with which Diane pushed back her chair and rose betrayed a troubled rather than an impatient spirit. Miss Grimston, she said, standing before the girl and looking down upon her, I should almost prefer not to have you take my affairs into your consideration. I doubt if they're worth it. I can't deny that I shrink from becoming a factor in your life, as well as from feeling that you must make your decisions or unmake them with reference to me. I'm not making my decisions or unmaking them with reference to you. It's with reference to Monsieur de Bouilleville. He has my father's consent to his asking me to be his wife. I understand that, according to the formal French fashion, he's going to do it tomorrow. Before I give him an answer, I must know that he is such a man as I could marry. You would have thought him so if you hadn't heard this about me. Even so, it's better for me to have heard it. Any prudent person would tell you that. What I'm going to ask you to do now will not be for your sake, it will be for mine. You're going to ask me to do something? Yes, to see Monsieur de Bienville. Diana recoiled with an expression of dismay. I know it will be hard for you, Miss Gripster pursued, and I wouldn't ask you to do it if it were not the straightest way out of a perplexing situation. I've confidence enough in him to believe that when he has seen you and heard your story, he'll act according to the dictates of a nature which I know to be essentially honourable, even if it's weak. You can see what that will mean to us all. It will not only clear you and rehabilitate him, but it will bring happiness to me. There was something in the way in which these brief statements were made that gave them the nature of an appeal. The very difficulty of the reserved heart in speaking out, the shame-flushed cheek, the subdued voice, the halting breath, had on Diana more potent effect than eloquence. What was left of her own hope, too, at once put forth its claim at the possibility of getting justice. It was a matter of taking her courage in both hands in one tremendous effort. But the fact that this girl believed in her was a stimulus to making the attempt. Before they parted, with stammering expressions of mutual sympathy, she had given her word to do it. End of chapter 15